We're working our way through the book of Malachi. This is part four, when spiritual intimacy feels elusive. And there are seasons like that, and frequently there are reasons. And we're looking at one of the dominant ones tonight. I want to talk to you. The title I've given this is Sinning Against the Body of Christ. One verse. Yes, you heard me right. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. God speaks through the prophet. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? There are basic spiritual laws that make relationship with God possible. We've looked at a couple of them in the few studies that we've done tonight. First, before anything else in my life, God's word must be honored above all. His will has to carry the day. There will be other things that incline my heart toward an easier compromise. The priests to whom God spoke in Malachi's day, they tried to pay lip service to God while giving the ultimate consideration to the the tastes and the desires of the people. The people didn't want to bring the best of their flocks because times were tough. The priests would accommodate that. It wasn't God's word. It wasn't God's command. But other things pressed them into disobedience. So the rule is, if I'm going to live near to God and he's going to work in my heart, his word comes above my convenience. His word comes against the opinion of the crowd. His word simply comes first. Then there's a lesson on on worship, that sincerity is not enough. Obedience is more important. Obedience trumps sincerity. The people were worshiping, just not the way God commanded. Obedience trumps sincerity, and obedience trumps sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You've probably heard the familiar saying, Each one worshiped God from his own heart in his own way. And it's the way the sentence ends that's all wrong. From his own heart, each one worshiped God from his own heart in his own way. From his own heart in no way links up with in his own way. Worship must be from a sincere heart, true enough, But after my heart is engaged in worship, it still has to be in God's way, not in my way. God's way is the only way a sincere heart should even want to worship. Worshiping my way is proof that I have a selfish heart, not a godly heart. So the statement statement doesn't work. There are two terrible ideas corrupting Genuine worship in that sentence, each one worship God from his own heart in his own way. And the two corrupting ideas are, A, the idea that I'm free to worship in whatever way makes me feel comfortable. God is more concerned that I'm happy with my worship than maybe he is happy with my worship. 
happens a lot. B, the other terrible idea is that worship is only a matter of the heart. Now, here's where, here's where we have to be careful. Worship certainly must come from a pure and true heart. I can't put on an outward front when my heart isn't right with God. My question is, where in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, does it say that worship is only a matter of the heart? Where does it say that if my heart is sincere, there's nothing else I need to consider before coming before God? Just a quick glance at your Bible will clear up any confusion on the issue. Here's some things I'm commanded to remember along with my sincere heart. I'm commanded to attend church frequently and consistently when I worship. I'm commanded to give sacrificially and regularly when I worship. I'm commanded to be baptized. Away with the idea, if you'd like to be baptized, come and see Pastor Chris. I don't care if you hate being baptized. You still need to come and see Pastor Chris because it's a commandment. We're commanded to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. We're commanded to lift our voice in praise and worship. There's a list of things. Now, all of them must be done with a sincere heart, true enough. But you can do, you can have a sincere heart and not do those things, and it's not pleasing to the Lord. I mean, I suppose an atheist could perform all those outward things with no spiritual benefit whatsoever. I get that. I get that. The externals by themselves will do nothing for anyone. But it's equally true. It's equally true that all those things are outward actions that involve more than the heart. The sincere heart is the root, but it's incomplete without the fruit of obedience in all of those things. Worship never has been and never will be just a matter of the heart. Can you see in the Old Testament, hypothetically, here's a family, the father comes, coming to Eli, and Eli says, where's the sacrifice? And the guy says, well, I didn't bring one because I just want you to know that I really love God. And I've just come here to I just want to declare that he means everything to me. I love him with all my heart. Praise his holy name. And Eli would say, well, that's good. You, you should love him with your heart. But the sacrifice comes with. God's commanded it. This is what you have to do. And the same is through all through the New Testament. A sincere heart is absolutely essential. No outward deed is enough. Having said that, a sincere heart without the outward act, isn't ever going to be pleasing to the Lord, and it really isn't a sincere heart wanting to obey. If we were just put here as spirit beings, God didn't have to give us these kinds of physical bodies. God doesn't have this kind of physical body. Angels don't have the same kind of bodies as we have. He could have just, he could have just picture it. He could have just made us all like, picture us all as great big hearts. Just slimy blobs of heart. 
than worshiping him with all our heart. That'd be all we'd need to know. But he didn't make us that way. He made us with physical bodies and commanded that these physical bodies be presented, offered, involved with our hearts in worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The people could have been as sincere as they wanted in Malachi's day, but those sacrifices that were lame, blemished, weak, and dying, they weren't what God was after, and no amount of good intention and good-heartedness would make up for their lack of obedience. Now we come to another principle. This is tonight now. That was all kind of review. A second principle in keeping relationship with God through worship, and it has to do with my relationship with you and your relationship with me. I don't mean me as a pastor. I just mean us as people. In just a few verses, Malachi will tell us how the people cover the altar with their tears. Think about this. They cover the altar with their tears, but they get nowhere. They get no answer to their prayers. He says that. We read Malachi 2.10 as the principle. Look at 2.13. And this second thing you do. It's related to the first. I'll show you that in a minute. You cover the altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. I mean, we need to pay close attention here. The the understanding of the average Christian today is if we could just have more great outpouring kind of prayer meetings our problems would be solved. And no argument from me that we need more prayer, more prayer meetings. But here's a situation that wasn't helped one bit by the fact that everybody, everybody was here. Picture it. Nobody's in the seats anymore. I get you all down here. We're all kneeling across the front of this church. Takes all the space all over here, all around the corner, because that's how much room it would take. And it's not quiet. Everybody is weeping, crying, sobbing before the Lord. And it's all for nothing. Doesn't that hit you as striking? Nothing's going to happen. You, you cover the altar, the Lord's altar, with tears, with weeping and groaning. Of course, we can understand how they wouldn't receive answers when they were self-centered and disobedient, bringing sacrifices that they knew God wouldn't accept. But the point of this text is there's something else wrong. There's another sin, less obvious, less talked about, and undetected sins. Unexposed sins are always the most deadly. And that's where it comes back to our text. They're crying around the altar for nothing. Why? 210. Here's where we open. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 
Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? This, this verse, point number one, although we're well into it, don't panic. This verse asks three searching rhetorical questions that I want to look at tonight. The first, A, have we all not one father? Now, most translations, I don't know which you have. Most translations like the ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, most will capitalize father, capital F. If you have an NIV tonight, it shows in the notes that it can be left small case as well as large case. That's true, because in the Hebrew, there is no large case or small case letters. They're all the same. Most of the time, it's pretty easy from the context to tell which father is being referred to. Here, it's not quite as simple. It could mean one father, small f, Abraham. Don't we all have the same father? As it's to the Jewish people that the prophet speaks. Or it could mean one father, God, capital F. Most translations go in that direction. Either way, my feeling, either way the prophet is saying something very similar. He means these people, God's people, they come from one stock. They're all, they're all bound together, either through Abraham, ultimately God calls Abraham, or Father God. They come from common stock, a common source. They are members one of another. That's the point. They're not an unrelated group of people. They aren't free just to pursue their own interests. They're bound together with obligations to each other. That's the first rhetorical question. Have we not all one father? The second one, B. Has not one God created us? That's why I think the ESV and translations like that are correct in capital F. Has not one God created us? I mean, that's pretty obvious and straightforward. Everything they are, everything they have is from God. They are what they are because of God. They're back in the land because of God. They hadn't earned any of these blessings. So in other words, both these questions, have we not all one father has not one God created us? The, both questions are, are taking them in the same direction. To heighten their awareness of living under grace. And the fact that they were forgetting this becomes evident from the next question. C. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here's some, some of the other translations, New King James. By dealing treacherously with one another. RSV, dealing treacherously each against his brother. So the central idea is the same. The idea in each case being that I damage something in my relationship with God when I am careless in my relationship with you. Here's what happened. The people of God had committed hidden sins, possessed hidden agendas, glossed 
over with kind words to be sure, but their hearts were turned against each other. We'll see what they did in just a little bit, not tonight. The phrase faithless to one another or dealing treacherously with one another. It actually comes from a a single word in the Hebrew, and it's the word for garment or cloak or wrap. And when you think about it just for a bit, you'll see what the prophet is getting at. We still use the phrase cloak and dagger to describe something that's cruel but mostly hidden, covert. The person doesn't brandish the dagger. He conceals it under the cloak. We talk to this day about keeping something under wraps. This is where that comes from. There's a plot not to be revealed. A scheme is being brewed, but it's being brewed in secret. People are left wounded, but nobody knows where the damage actually came from. And just on the side, if this was a big deal for the people in Malachi's day, and I'm going to show you how Jesus talks about it in the church, in our day, this this uh, dealing treacherously, cloak and dagger, under wraps, is greatly, greatly facilitated among Christian people with cruel texts and posts, faceless attacks, unforgiving hearts, justified personal vengeance. We don't even have to be physically visible to say and do something to someone in the body of Christ. It can be instant, be anonymous, blind copy. The point the people were missing here, remember, 210 is where we get these three questions designed to point out how they're related to each other and it relates, how they treat each other relates to their relationship with God. That's 210. 213 shows their desire to ignore this problem. They cover the altar with tears, but they're not hearing from God in any way, okay? That's, that's where we are. That's what we're looking at here. Their actions to each other, usually somewhat secret, but they're bringing their visible spiritual lives and their relationship with God to a screeching halt. But the people, people are having a hard time making the connection. That's the problem. They aren't making the connection. How do you know that, Pastor Don? We know it because they wouldn't be there weeping at the altar if they knew exactly what the problem was. They're not seeing it. That the way this side of the room, hypothetically, of course, because you're all, I know how godly you all are. The way this side of the room treats people on this side of the room, has everything to do with whether God is ever going to touch one life in Cedarview Community Church. See, that's, that's the point. That's the point. And what I want to show you, and this isn't in your notes, because I did this just this afternoon at 4 o'clock. I want to show you how Jesus comes on the scene with the same emphasis, and then I'm going to wrap up. Jesus comes on the scene dealing with 
It could be Malachi. If we didn't know it was Jesus, these words could come from Malachi. Matthew 18, 15 to 35. And I want you to see why I'm starting at verse 15, because verse 15 doesn't look like it has anything to do with the topic. But when we're done reading, I'm hoping to show you that it really does, okay? Matthew 18, 15 to 35. So remember Malachi's principle. They're dealing faithlessly with one another, and as a result, they have no relationship with God. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you see, you can see the legalese in here. This is charge, witnesses, evidence. 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, like, this has serious consequences, Jesus is saying. You're not just piddling around in your little church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Most people who quote those verses have no idea of the context. They just pulled them out of. Okay, so. This is serious stuff. Here's two people. There's a grudge. There's who knows who's guilty. They've got complaints. It's not going away. It's getting worse. And so they take it with two or three witnesses, and they can't sort it out. So there's a board or a governing body. Somehow it gets to a church. Their churches weren't organized exactly the same way ours would be today. But we're going we're gonna to get to the bottom of this. Okay? There. There's the process. Jesus says it's a, it's a big deal. Now, you can understand now, Peter, who just heard these words from Jesus, is thinking, hokey dina. That's what he said in the Greek, hokey dina. Peter comes up and says to him, that's Jesus, Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So at what point do I have to deal with this legally, like before the whole church? How often do I just forgive them? Seven? That's quite a bit. Jesus, 22. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, in this context, you got this guy, this guy, they're at each other's throats. They can't, no one's forgiving. No one can work it out. Take it to the witnesses. See if the charge stands. The witnesses can't work it out. Take it to the church, and it's going to be serious. Peter, ugh. How many times do I have to forgive before I do this? Seven is probably feeling pretty generous in Peter's mind. It's quite a bit. Somebody really wrongs you, the same person, in the same way, seven times, you're pretty ticked off. 
Jesus says no, 70 times 7. Therefore, Jesus, kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to think. Think, think, think. What is Jesus trying to say here in this parable right after talking about two people can't sort it out, they can't forgive, take it to evidence, get witnesses, take it to the church, come down with a verdict. And so now Jesus doesn't just stop saying, take it to the church and whatever they decide, that stands. And he can't leave the subject alone. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts. Accounts. Settling accounts? Take it to the church. Do you see the similarity here? Compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, and when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had payment to be made. Pay up! So the servant fell on his knees. Fell on his knees. And implored him, have patience with me. Have patience, I'll pay you everything. And that has to be the stupidest sentence ever recorded in Scripture. There's no way he can pay. He'll never be able to pay. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him. He puts his hands around this guy's throat. Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Do you think, do you think this, this first debtor who had been forgiven, do you think he might have heard something like, where, did, where have I heard these words before? Have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused. Went, put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And the master said, get, get back here. You wicked servant. He's not wicked because the guy didn't really owe him the money. He didn't steal money. The guy really owed him the hundred denarii. Well, what, what was wicked? I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the wicked part. It wasn't that he wasn't really owed the money. The wicked part was he had just received tremendous grace. And he's not extending any grace. And don't brush over these words. And... In anger. This is the wrath of God Jesus is talking about. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He's never getting out. Never. Well, it's just a story. Jesus isn't actually talking about how God deals with us. 
35. This is not parable anymore. So also my heavenly father, who is that by the way? You can answer me. It's God. It's God. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. What, what did he do? He imprisons him in bondage. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I read that as a unit of scripture because I think Jesus intends for it to be read as a unit of scripture, starting at verse 15 with working out issues in the church. My experience over the years has always been Christians who are miffed about something, Christians who aren't even familiar with very many passages in the Bible always know about the, if your brother sins against you, take it to the church text. And I often like to point out the parable on forgiveness which follows it. In other words, Jesus' last word on difficult issues among Christians. And here's the point. Forgiveness is better than taking the issue to the church. Way better. Every time I'm wrong, Jesus doesn't require me to make somebody pay. The point of the parable is I'm less likely to, to take, oh, I won't pick anybody. I'm far less likely to take Rini Horbin, an issue to the church where I think she's sinned against me. I'm far less likely to do that if I'll just pause and think, wait a minute. How much have I been forgiven again? How much grace have I received that I didn't deserve? How much debt, how much debt have I been totally released? I was eternally bound in death and sin and judgment. Hell. Gone. You know, maybe I don't need to take this issue to the church to be resolved. <laughs> maybe I can just say, God bless you. You deserve all the grace I can give. And maybe if more of us read the whole context. So back to Malachi. God, in firm yet loving words, he's trying hard to remove these people's blind spots who are kneeling at the altar weeping and can't figure out why nothing's happening. They're dealing treacherously with each other behind the scenes. And God is trying to bring understanding to remove the frustration of their fruitless worship and unanswered prayers because the biggest mistakes we can make spiritually are the mistakes that we allow to continue unchallenged. So, let the light of this principle fill your soul because you might not need it tonight. Maybe you're just tickled pink with everybody in the church. But I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of people that call this their church home and not all of them are as nice as you are. And sooner or later, someone's going to do something to you that you don't like. God will see to it. Do you know why he'll see to it? He'll see to it because he wants all of us growing in forgiving grace. And if there was nothing to forgive, we would never learn that discipline. 
And everyone said...